I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, and welcome to She and Her. I'm Anita Rao. And I am Sandra Davidson, and we are the hosts of She and Her. And if you're new to our show and to the season, welcome. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, before we dive into our first episode, we want to take a moment to reflect on what we're about and how we got to where we are and to delivering the season to y'all. So Anita and I have been producing She and Her in Hillsborough, North Carolina for over a year now. And when we first started talking about She and Her, we felt like there was a lack of media that really featured the voices of millennial women. Thankfully now, there are a number of wonderful examples um, of successful shows like this, like Call Your Girlfriend, Another round of Women of the Hour. And those shows to us are both unapologetically feminist and very culturally timely. So it's been really exciting to watch that unfold. And it's really uh, caused us to think about who we want to be given the new media landscape out there. Exactly. Um, We thought a lot about what we can offer. And we've dreamt up a season that really foregrounds Southern stories and experiences of Southern women. So this season, you will be hearing from a distinct number of Southern voices, Southern women making great art, Southern women leading conversations about sexuality, identity, and their own feminism. And along the way, you'll also meet women from all over the country whose stories and um, perspectives really align with the themes that we want to explore in this season. Yes. So without further ado, welcome to episode one of our new season, The Exclusive World of Debutantes. Today we are going to be talking about debutantes, and even though I grew up in the South, come from a really Southern family, I really knew nothing about the tradition of debutantes. My college sweetmate roommate was a Deb. I knew she dressed up in a white dress and was presented to society, whatever that meant, but that's really it for me. Yeah, so luckily our guest today um, has been a Deb herself and also studied the tradition. Anna Shelton Ormond was a Deb in the fall of 2012. And she has a lot of mixed feelings about the tradition. After she participated in it herself, she decided to explore it more through a sociology honors thesis. And a number of years later, Anna and I happened to be at the same holiday party. And she was telling me all about her research. And I thought that this would be a perfect topic for us to kick off this season. So we started the conversation asking Anna to tell us about the history of the Deb tradition in her own family. The history of the Deb ball in general goes back centuries. 
generally speaking, it's this tradition where when a woman becomes of marital age, whatever that age is in, in a given culture at a given time, there's this ceremony where her family presents her to society and says basically that she's on the market. Um, a lot of people will push back against that definition of the ball today. They'll say it doesn't really mean that anymore. Um, but the one in North Carolina that I participated in operates at the state level. And that ball was started in 1926, to the best of my knowledge. And my great-grandmother was actually in the very first class of North Carolina debutantes. Oh, wow. Mm. So that's why it's really carried through my family for a lot of years, although I do suspect that um, I'm probably the last Ormond girl that will have made her debut. So did you grow up hearing about this experience at the dinner table? Like, when was the, the idea of this being a family tradition sort of first introduced to you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I really didn't grow up hearing about it. The first time that I learned about the dub ball was when my older sister was invited to debut. So I have two older sisters. Both of them were debutantes before I was. And when my oldest sister, Rose, got her invitation, I remember my sisters and I sort of being like, what's this? And <laughs> and my parents kind of framed it to us um, in terms of like, this is a family tradition. Um, your great-grandmother was a part of this back in the 1920s. This is a way to honor families in the South. And I also understood it in terms of the patriarchy within my own family. Um, my family was very patriarchal in the sense that my dad didn't want us to go on dates until we were 16. And he took us on our very first date and showed us how a man should treat a woman. On that date, he gave us purity rings. So I kind of understood this as another step in um, my dad kind of being a protector of mm. how we would be presented as young women. And, you know, I guess giving his blessing that we were women now in a sense, whereas before maybe we were little girls. So that's how I came to understand it when I first learned about it. So talk about this invitation. Like yeah. Who does the inviting? Who gets invited? To the best of my knowledge, you get invited if your family has a connection to dub culture. So for my family, it definitely has to do with the fact that my great-grandmother was a debutante in the 1920s. For other people, they get roped into dub culture because they're very close friends with other people in the deaf community. Um, one particular family from my hometown was not connected to deaf culture, but they were friends with a family and they both had daughters that were the same age. So when the one daughter in deaf culture was invited to be a deb, um, they they wanted this other daughter to be invited to be in, to be a deb too, so that they could debut together as friends. Mm -hmm. So in that way. Um, the legacy builds through social connections. And is it the Junior League who's doing the inviting? What's the organization itself that extends those invitations? Right. The ball is sponsored by the Tripsa Club in Raleigh. That is a club comprised of young men ages 21 to 35, oh, wow. which to me is very surprising. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> right? You, you would think that something like that might be put on by old women and wow. instead it's young men um, young men from Raleigh specifically hmm. but a lot of them have their wives you know kind of help them decide who should be invited they also have secret nominators throughout the state one woman that I interviewed for my senior thesis she had not had any connection with deaf culture at all but someone from her church noticed her and thought that she was just a really upstanding person in her community and so she made a nomination and it got back to the Terpsa Korean Club and she got an invitation and was like, what is this? Oh, wow. <laughs>
So you watched your sisters get invitations and go through that process. Um, what was what was your experience as a younger sibling? I mean, you probably saw it coming for you. What were you, what were you thinking watching them go through it? Um, when my oldest sister was invited, I thought that it was like a little bit silly, just a little like superfluous, I suppose. But at the same time, I was very intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a it's kind of like a wedding weekend where at least in your family, you're the center of attention. You get to buy this beautiful dress, um, attend a number of parties. You get to take a date with you. (laughs) My oldest sister took a date who at the time was just a friend, and now they're married and have a two-year-old. So, you know, it's just like, who wouldn't want a fun weekend like that? (laughs) But then um, my perception of it certainly changed as I got older. You had a lot of mixed feelings going into the weekend, and we know because you wrote this in your thesis that on the eve of your Deb weekend, your Facebook status said the following. Oh, gosh. (laughs) OMG. So excited to finally join society as a mild mild young lady after not actually existing for the last 19 years. Big thanks to the male population for allowing me this brief moment of visibility. LOL, no one loves patriarchy like I do. Um, I laughed out loud at my desk when I read this earlier today. So you obviously had... You know, you were so you were already stepping back and thinking critically about it before you went in. Why t- take us through the decision making process? Why did you decide to do it? Right. Um, so, like I said, I always knew that I would be invited because my two older sisters were invited, and I was like sort of um, adverse to that, but also sort of like interested and intrigued. But then, um, my first year in college. I was taking a sociology class, and we watched this documentary called People Like Us, and the documentary explored how social groups might erect boundaries to keep other people out, Hmm. and as I was watching that documentary, this was maybe in like February, and I knew that sometime in the spring I would be receiving my invitation, and I just started thinking, oh my gosh, this is part of what the dead ball is. I know Mm -hmm. that it means a lot of things to a lot of different families, and there's certainly a lot of sentimentality, but there is also social exclusion and boundary maintenance. So I just thought to myself, all right, there's the the, um, material excess of it. There's racial segregation. There's patriarchy. You know, there are all these things that I am really uncomfortable with. So I didn't want to throw my parents off guard. I started talking to them in advance about how I was uncomfortable with this and just sort of broached the topic of like, maybe I won't do this. How would y'all feel about that? And it really was not an option for me to not do it. My parents were very upset to hear that I wasn't into it. Well, actually, I think that they knew that I wasn't into it, but they assumed that I would just sort of like go along and do Mm. it because my sisters had you know, this is who I was and where I came from, and I owed it to my family to be a part of this. And I remember the day that my invitation came. You know, we'd had some of these, like, tense conversations about it, and I was is sitting it delivered, at- like, on a carriage? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> like a Butler man just in walks it. in. Yeah. It's, like, on a silver plate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, it just came in the mail. Oh, okay. <laughs> to you at college or to your parents' house? Um, to my parents' house. Okay. So for some reason, I was I was home with my parents, and I was sitting at our kitchen table, and my dad just, like, came up to the table and put the invitation down and, like, walked away very dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started having some real conversations, and I shared with them my objections to it, um, which were moral and spiritual and, and social objections to it. And 
I suggested, hey, if this is about spending time with our family and, you know, spending time with both sets of grandparents, why don't we go away together, like to the beach for a weekend and we can have a nice meal. We can dance on the dock. Like we can have this time together as a family. And my dad was not interested in that Mm. option. He said it was, he said that if I didn't participate, it would be like, there was no point in my other two sisters participating Mm. because we were a package deal and I was the last Mm. one. And if I didn't do it, you know, then, then what was it all for? That is tough. Yeah, it was, it was tough, especially because there's such a focus on like the father daughter element. Hmm. He felt very personally offended that I wasn't interested in that with him. And I tried to show him like, I love you in other ways. I want to spend time with you in other ways, but this is bigger than the two of us. This has wider implications that I'm not comfortable with. And he wanted to walk me through the weekend so that I knew the full scope of what I was saying no to, which I think was like a little, you know, I I think that he knew that I wouldn't say no to it after Mm. seeing his reaction, but he started tearing up when he talked about the father-daughter lunch in the morning of the presentation ceremony. And I I was already kind of thinking ahead because I'd seen my sister get married and I'd been to some other weddings in my family. And I was starting to notice like weddings are super patriarchal. And (laughs) when I have a wedding, I want it to be different. I want some ownership over this. So I was already sort of like bargaining in my own head and thought, all right, I'm going to give my dad this opportunity to present me on his arm in a white dress. And like, that'll be our father daughter (laughs) moment. Like you got that. But when I get married, it's about me. I mean, me and my partner, obviously, but like, it's not going to be defined in these patriarchal terms. So ultimately, I accepted the invitation, but... And, and was that yeah. something that you shared with him as your decision-making, or was that private for you, and then eventually when you got married, that's... Oh, I definitely kept kept my cards to myself. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that was probably the right move. Okay, right. so take us to that weekend. So Anita has given me sort of the overview and it sounds like it was quite a weekend for you the actual debutante ball oh, it was it was it was quite a weekend so do you want me to just like tell tell the whole story of how it went down yeah and it is a weekend it's not just a day it's a series of it's it's a weekend days. yes it's a weekend beginning on on a thursday actually so um I had to miss two days of college class to do this, which I find so interesting Hmm. that parents like want their kids to like miss class to partake in this. But on Thursday, we have a rehearsal, much in the same way that you might have a wedding rehearsal. You know, that night there's a cocktail party and then Friday morning there is a father daughter luncheon and then Friday evening is the presentation ceremony. And just to paint a picture of that. This is where women are officially presented to society. They're called out on stage one by one. The debutantes are wearing long white dresses, long white gloves, holding a bouquet of red roses, which at the time I was like, this definitely symbolizes like sexual ripeness. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so, yeah, each deb is called out one by (laughs) one, meets her chief marshal in the middle of the stage. The chief marshal is a dad or a stepfather or an uncle, but definitely a man and definitely someone close to the family. They step forward for a picture. The crowd, you know, goes wild. Cheers for them. <laughs> and then the Deb is, is escorted to her seat. And there are usually around 200 Debs. So this ceremony takes a long time. 
And Good Lord. the ceremony is led by a head Deb who is from Raleigh. So she's the first one to come out. And then there are um, like leader Debs from throughout the state that then come and sit up front. And they, I just felt so bad for them because they have to be on, on stage for like two hours. Mm. So you're looking around. Are you seeing friends? Is there a lot of people that you know? What is the racial makeup of the crowd? Oh, it's definitely all white. Okay. Definitely. Um, I've heard that there have been a few exceptions to that. I'd be really curious to hear what those exceptions were and how how Deb culture responded to that. But my year, definitely all white people. Um, I, I knew a few people, but... I didn't have, like, my core group of friends going through that process with me. Okay. So, mm-hmm. all right, so you go on stage. You're presented. So you're presented. Um, after all, like, 200-some women are announced, the whole group stands up and is officially announced as that year's, you know, cohort mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of debutantes. And then the president of the Tripsacrean Club, which, keep in mind, like, they're kind of young men – comes on stage and gives the head debutante a kiss on the cheek. Oh, my God. And then leads her out, which um, (laughs) is just, like, kind of creepy. Yeah. Wow. This is different. That's that's the presentation (laughs) ceremony. And so you're not allowed – so you talk about, like, the ripe ripe red roses (laughs) and the white dress and you're not allowed to participate if you are engaged or – That's right. Okay. So it is very much about sexual purity. At least yes. in, in the image it's trying to present. Right. A lot of people would, would push back on that for sure and say, you know, this has nothing to do with marriage. Like, this is not sexist. It's just a way to celebrate my family's culture. But I thought it was really interesting. Um, I was looking back at my own invitation to be a Deb, and they asked specifically, if you're married or engaged to be married, please decline your invitation. Hmm. Mm. Wow. And are there men there? Like, so you bring a date, but are there other men of marriage age there yeah, oh like you know, eligible bachelors like, oh <laughs> there are some eligible bachelors yeah there's like brothers and i don't know maybe cousins if you can procure enough tickets as a family okay so there's like there could be some matchmaking happening at this thing definitely in theory does that happen um you know i'm not sure i haven't heard any stories okay i'm sure that like these families do have some some intermarriage just like any social circle sure. you know but I don't know if it's like, oh, we met at the dead ball. Hmm. Probably a lot of these families have known each other for a long time. There's just it seems to me like there's obviously some very overt uh, signaling going on here or there. It could be interpreted like single. Yeah. <laughs> right. Eligible, available. Right. You know. Right. And your date, your escort uh, was your boyfriend at the time is now your partner. What conversations did you all have leading up to the event? Um, he was very um, gracious about it. You know, I told him this is going to happen. I would love for you to be by my side as I go through this. And he certainly proved to be, you know, a, a great partner during that time. I couldn't have done it without him. Um, in fact, in a in a really strange way, we had this moment, or it was a moment for me. It probably wasn't a moment for him, and I'll I'll tell why in a moment. Where I just thought, oh my gosh, you are the best person I've ever met. I'm pretty sure I'm going to marry you. So I'll I'll back up to the yes. presentation ceremony. Um, I have really bad headaches, and as we were waiting in line for the presentation ceremony, I started getting a migraine. By the time that I was sitting on stage. 
I felt nauseous and I was sitting sort of to the side of the stage and was sort of like side eyeing the wing like "Mm, what would it look like if I just (laughs) bolted off this stage like I might (laughs) but I stuck it out and after we finished the presentation ceremony my family was outside in front of the concert hall talking to some other families and I just turned to Charlie my boyfriend and said I, I have to go. I can't stand here anymore. So the hotel where we were staying was like a block away. We bolt to the hotel. We get there, and there's just like this sea of people waiting at the elevators because so many Deb families <laughs> were staying there that weekend. It was just like tuxedos and gowns and wedding dresses like all flooded around the elevator area. And I was like, uh-uh. I, can, I cannot <laughs> wait. So we take to the stairwell, and my family's hotel rooms were like on the ninth floor. So I'm trucking <laughs> up the steps like seriously about to vomit and I'm like trying to rip my dress off me (laughs) poor Charlie's just like what is happening (laughs) and I had this dress where there were these like buttons on the back where you need a needle to like to undo every single one so it was on me really tight and finally we got up to the to the ninth floor and I kind of slammed the door in his face and proceeded (laughs) to get very sick But then afterwards, my parents came in my room and were like, are you okay? Are you feeling better? And they said, you know, if you are feeling at all better, you really need to go to this dance. You really need to rally and go to the and go to the actual ball because your grandparents came all this way. It's a big deal that they're here. You need to you need to dance with them. So I was feeling better. I went to the ball like for a hot 30 minutes, (laughs) Um, had a had a pretty good time. But then my parents took the private car that we had rented to escort my grandparents back home. So we didn't have that car. We had to ride on the shuttle, this bumpy shuttle. (laughs) So I'm sitting there. um, Charlie's beside me. My siblings are there. And I just like, I just get so sick on the bus and realize like, this is not going to be good. I just have my hand over my mouth, like just praying that nothing terrible happens Char- you're still wearing this white dress I'm at this point. I'm okay. still wearing a wedding dress. Charlie sees me going through this, and he takes mm-hmm. my purse. I had this little, like, white clutch purse that was laced with pearls. <laughs> and he dumps out all the contents, hands it to me, and just gives me this look like, you know what to do. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I got sick in Damn. this in this clutch purse. <laughs> And I knew that, like, probably all these families were around me looking at me like, that trash, trash Deb. Like, she's just, you know. Wow. Couldn't even wait to the after party. <laughs> right. Right. It was like, what, like 11 o'clock oh at night? Gosh. Not late enough for that. Um, but, yeah, I was just like, I just felt so bad. But the whole time, Charlie was beside me rubbing my back. And he was Aww. just saying, it's okay. You've got this. And as I'm throwing up, I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> the irony of the whole yeah, situation. Right. So rich. Well, should we take a break and then yeah. come back and we'll talk more about Debs? So this season, we are doing something a little different. Um, We have decided to feature our moms in every single episode. We've heard from so many of y'all that you love hearing from them, and we know that they love sharing their thoughts and questions. So in every episode, you'll be hearing a bit about what they think about this particular topic. Uh, And today, we asked them what they knew about debutante culture and what similar experiences they had in their own coming of age. 
So debutante culture. Yes. Was that at all a part of your upbringing? It was not a part of my uh, my personal upbringing in the sense that my family participated at all. It was a part of my upbringing in the sense that I was aware of it because my parents had friends and acquaintances involved in that type of life. Mm-hmm. And that was not the environment that we lived and operated in because we lived in Lillington in part, I think, uh, and because that probably was not something that would have appealed to my folks. I think if either my sister or I had decided that we were interested in being Debs, that that might have been available to us, Mm -hmm. but that was not anything that I was certainly interested Mm -hmm. in. I did have a cousin who was a Deb. And why weren't you interested in it? Uh, I, I'm not much of a joiner. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. I, I don't want this to sound judgmental, but even then, I perceived of it as a rather elitist event. And I do not think I would have found it fun or interesting to have gone to the same types of event with the very same group of people and had the focus be on what I was going to be wearing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I would not have been comfortable at all in that. I, I just don't think that was anything that would have appealed to me then. Well, first of all, what is your perception of and reflections on this sort of ritual and was there anything like this in England or in your own community or culture growing up anything that sort of resembled this totally not where I mean no would be the answer where I grew up I mean the closest thing that we had was that I went for elocution lessons which was really learning like how to say poetry very nicely and fancily and I do believe even in like in London and places, we we just do not have anything like that in England, uh, like a, a coming out or a, a sort of a, a recognizing of being a woman. There really isn't anything as far as I know. Um, but you've given me some homework and I will look into it a little bit. What was um, the elocution? Was that through school or what were you doing? No, it was private. Um, I would go once a week and we had to, to um, learn a poem. So my one one of my favorites was Daffodils by William Wordsworth. And you would take elocution exams and get through levels of, you know, proficiency in saying poetry, not in Geordie slang, but in good quality Queen's English. Oh, okay. Do you want to recite your so, poem? <laughs> yes, please. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills. And all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stand an everlasting line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads and sprightly danced. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could be but gay in such a jocund company. (laughs) 
<laughs> what are those words even? <laughs> so, it's, well, what, so you're reflecting on daffodils. Yeah. And then at the end, a poet could be good gay in such a jocund. Jocund is like a, a, a like a, a funny or a, like a laughable company. Oh. So it's just it's just an English poem. But that was my very best. Are you glad you took elocution lessons? Yes, because I still know that poem, William Wordsworth. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Welcome back to She and Her. We are here with Anna Shelton Ormond, who's talking about her own experience as a debutante and her experience doing research in college about this. So take us to that now. How did you decide to look at this um, from an academic or sociological perspective, and, and what did that look like? Right. I knew that I wanted to write an honors thesis, and I was kind of thinking about my own experiences, and I reflected back on that Facebook status that I, that I posted that you just read, and I remembered how I was so confused at the time because a few women liked it who were debutantes and who... I thought that they were kind of enthusiastic about being dubs, mm. and here I was being entirely snarky and obnoxious about the dub ball on social media, and they seemed to agree with it somewhat. Um, and I actually had a conversation with a few of those dubs the day of the presentation ceremony, and one woman said, I mean, the dub ball used to be this weird sexist thing, but it's not that way anymore. Now it's just a symbol. Mm. And I thought, but a symbol of what? Like, what is the purpose behind this? And... At the time that I was a deb, I do feel like I was a little bit, you know, I thought that I was unique as a resistor. I thought that my experience was unlike any other debs, you know. But then I looked back on it two years later and thought, that can't possibly be the case. I, I think this is a lot more nuanced. You know, there are there are several factors that are pushing and pulling women into this arguably outdated tradition. So Obviously, it's not outdated. Obviously, it's very relevant or there wouldn't be 200 plus women participating every year. Hmm. So I wanted to understand why women decided to participate, how they rationalized their status as Debs and how they understood the purpose and the meaning of the Deb Ball. We were able to reach out to two Debs who shared their experiences and their stories with us, and we are going to play two voice memos. First up, we have Lucy Manning from Chapel Hill. I participated in the Deb Ball because I had heard from these friends that were older than me that it was really fun, um, that it made your summer really fun. You had these parties to look forward to um, and luncheons. 
Um, and I also participated because my grandmother was really excited about it. Um, I found a few things kind of challenging about the debutante ball. I found the weekend in particular challenging because it seemed like it was just a bunch of white families that had been just chosen because of who their families were, uh, and there was just, like, literally no diversity. I also felt kind of weird that we were all, we were willingly doing it, and we were, like, kind of laughing about it, trying to laugh it off and make it seem like we didn't care, but also, like, we were there, and so I feel like that kind of made it seem like we did care in a way. Um, I also was <laughs> had a bit of a problem with just the obsession that my grandmother and my mom had over all the details, like all the the arrangements of the weekend and the summertime, like the luncheons, everything, like that was just, from the minute we got those invitations, that was what almost every conversation was about. Like we went over to our grandmother's house, it was, you know, who are, who's your escort and who are you going to this party with and blah, 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 and like what dress are you going to wear to this and all, it was just so much. I don't feel like my feelings have changed that much since I've participated, but I do feel, have thought more about that it's a very excessive event. Um, lots of money is spent on the event and seemingly for something that's a little bit pointless. You know, in the 21st century, what does this tradition represent? What does it mean? It, it certainly doesn't mean you're eligible for marriage. Like that's totally just like not a thing anymore. Um, it does represent, I think, it emphasizes and honors family. And that was a really special thing to me was that um, they talked about father-daughter relationships and um, just like the importance of family. And in the South, I think that's that's just traditionally been a big thing is like family. I probably wouldn't want my own daughter to be a Deb. Um, if they wanted to do it, I wouldn't stop them. But I don't think that the the debutante process or ceremony really means anything, and I don't think it's that important. Um, I wouldn't feel more or less valued as a parent if my daughter was a debutante or was invited to be, um, and I also wouldn't want them to feel like it gave them any extra value because I just don't think it does. So next up we have Caitlin Green who sent us a voice memo from California. Caitlin is originally from Edenton, North Carolina, which is a small town of about 5,000 people. My first memory of debutante conversations probably go back to when my older sister was um, going through it herself. I still didn't really realize what exactly it meant. So a few years later when it was my turn, that's probably when I first realized how ridiculous it was and how I just didn't believe in what the tradition stood for. So when the time came, when I was, I guess, 19 going into my sophomore year of college, my mom was like, okay, you're doing this debutante ball in the, in the fall. And at first I was just really angry because I thought it was really stupid that I was going to have to miss three days of college classes for it. And I just didn't understand why it was necessary. And I've just never really been traditionally feminine. So dressing up and just being in front of people has just never been my thing. And I was convinced that I was going to be able to talk myself out of it. I threw a fit. Like, I'm pretty sure I even cried. I was just so upset. My mom and I thought about it. My dad just probably couldn't really have cared less. But since my mom really wanted me to do it, he was like, no, you have to do it. It'll make your mom happy. And being from such a small town in the South, I think I grew up with a lot of conservative people. And maybe when I was in high school, that kind of swayed the way I thought. So when I went to college and I made all these new friends who are actually 
really liberal. It was great. I became more liberal and more understanding of feminism. And so it just made it so much harder to do it. But I mean, I, I did it because I kind of had to, to make my mom happy. It was kind of like I didn't have a choice. So the preparation for the actual event started that summer before. And I just remember going shopping with my mom for dresses for like all of the pre-parties. There was like random cocktail parties throughout the summer that I had to go to. But then I remember getting fitted for my dress for the uh, actual debutante ball, which is, it's really funny to think about now because I wore a wedding gown. I mean, my, it was my, the one my sister wore. She had gotten it from a bridal shop and everything. And we just got it tailored to fit me. I was actually just looking through like the Facebook album I have from the whole thing. And I was reading like comments that people were writing and it was like, oh my God, you look so pretty. Like I've never seen you look so beautiful. And it's just funny because it's, I mean, I just didn't wear makeup back then. So I guess people seeing me with actual makeup on and my hair done and wearing a dress was just, I looked beautiful to them. At the time, my mom was probably, and, and still is, was probably annoyed with me and like angry with me for the way I acted about it just because she probably thought that I was ungrateful. I and mean, I don't blame her, but my mom and I are just really different people. And I'd say my feelings about the whole debutante ball process in general have changed since I did it. I mean, as much as I hated it then, thinking about it now, I, I hate it even more. I wouldn't say I learned anything from it. If anything, it made me more of a feminist and just assured me that if I ever have daughters, this will never happen. All right. So both Caitlin and Lucy sort of have sort of on the spectrum of, I guess, ambivalent to negative. I don't know what, how you characterize it. Mm-hmm. Disinterested um, reactions. Can you talk a bit about some of the more enthusiastic women um, and what you heard from them about why they wanted to participate and in, in their reflections on the tradition? So I heard both Lucy and Caitlin mention that they weren't particularly into some of the aspects about it. Um, For example, for Caitlin, she mentioned that she didn't really like to dress up and she um, she didn't really she wasn't really that interested in the parties. You know, she said, my parents made me go to these parties for enthusiastic dubs. Those are some of the elements that they are most excited about. I, in my research, the women that I talked to who were enthusiastic might have been hearing about this for a long time. They were very much in their element. Maybe they were involved in sororities at their college where dressing up and going to parties was just like the norm. Mm. So I think for those women, it was kind of like, I not only get to dress up and feel so pretty and attend these parties with my friends, I mean, having friends in that social circle is a big factor as well. Like, if you were kind of a loner, it obviously wouldn't be a whole lot of fun, even if you did like to dress up. But having friends, getting to go to parties, and then on top of that, pleasing your family Hmm. and getting to see your parents beam at you and Hmm. having this knowledge that you're continuing the tradition, I think that all of those factors caused some women to be very excited about the event. So what were some of the conclusions of this that you found most hard to sit with? It obviously seems like, you know, a lot of the aspects of the tradition are very gendered. They're sort of reinforcing particular beauty standards, particular thoughts about sexuality. On the other hand, there's this these questions of culture and family legacy and family history. So you're sort of piecing all of this together. What conclusions did you draw and which of them were hard for you to, to sit with? 
Right. Um, even now, as I read back over my thesis, I'm a little bit troubled like with this concept of choice, because as a feminist, I want to affirm everything that the women around me are doing. I want to say like, yeah, girl, this is your choice. Like you own it. But with the dead ball, it's so much more nuanced. Um, and, and that was really my finding was that um, the dead ball is this kind of hegemonic institution, meaning that it doesn't really receive any any questions because there's this illusion of free will. It's sort of like commonsensical. And that's because there are elements of consent. There are good things that women can get out of it. But there are, there's also some sacrifice and an element of coercion. No one that I talked to enjoyed the presentation ceremony, hmm. which is really interesting because that's sort of the pinnacle of the event. That's when you are officially presented to society, which is supposedly the whole point of being a debutante. But the women I talked to described being really physically un- uncomfortable with that. They didn't like being put on the spot. They thought it was really boring. So there were some things that they gave up, but in return, they got to go to these parties. They got to make their parents happy. They got to dress up. So I found that that's what um, enables the dead ball to continue and to thrive is this kind of give and take. And it's really quite sophisticated on the part of parents and on the part of the Terpsichorean members. I mean, if no one if no one agrees to be a debutante, there is no debutante ball. Mm. And there's an incentive to keep the dead ball going. Not only does the participation fee um, finance the, the Terpsichorean Club's um, social events for the rest of the year. Oh, my God. <laughs> but also it's $3,000. Right? Um, last time I checked, which was about two years ago, it's it's almost $3,000 just to accept an invitation. Wow. And there's no charitable cause, you know, like, which is fine. You do you. But I think to me it becomes problematic when that comes crashing down upon these young women and they're being told, like, you really should make our family happy and do this. Um, I, I just would like to think that all the women are participating because they really, really want to. Mm. And I'm sure that there were some women out there who were 100 percent like free will. I'm about this. I want to do this. I did not talk to any of those women in my research. Well, the debutante tradition is very Southern, and I have of late been thinking a lot about Southern feminist heroes and who would those be and what does it mean to be Southern and be feminist. And I wonder, what does it mean to you to be a Southern feminist? And how do you think about that? You know, I think to be Southern means to love the place that you call home. I mean, there, there's so much that I love about the South, but the patriarchal ideals and all these like protections around white women's purity it should be noted like that's definitely a white construct um, in a lot of ways historically those are things that are definitely problematic and those are things that I bump up against all the time we talked earlier a little bit about how I was already thinking ahead to my wedding and that was another sphere where my feminist principles definitely collided with southern culture in a way that was hard, but ultimately mine and my partner's wedding was beautiful and it was Southern and it was as feminist as we could manage. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. So it, it's difficult to be, to be Southern and to be feminist sometimes, but then in other ways it makes sense because the South is a region and yes, it has this history, but there's also a lot of struggle for recognition and a lot of really inspiring change has sprung up out of the South. And I think it's an honor to be a part of that 
Um, and to not escape it, to not be like, oh, I'm just so over the South. Like, if I'm going to be a feminist, I need to go up North or go out West. I think you can be a feminist right here in the South. And, and it's really important to do that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much and I appreciate your openness and intelligence that you talk about this with. And Yes. Thank you both so much for having me. This has been really refreshing. Oh, all right. That was Anna Shelton Ormond talking about being a Deb in North Carolina and Southern feminism. And we are thrilled to be offering you some amazing episodes this season. You can find photos on Facebook and Instagram. And for this episode, you can actually see photos of all of our Debs in their Deb dresses. So the you white don't want to miss it. Dresses. The white wedding dresses. No, you don't. Check those out at She and Her Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can check out some of our old shows by finding us on iTunes or Stitcher or in all those other places where people listen to podcasts. You can write us there, too. And we also have a website, sheandherradio.com. Send us your ideas, send us your thoughts, feedbacks, and feelings. We're very feelings-friendly. We are, and we are going to be coming to you every week, back-to-back for the next 10 weeks or so. So we'll see you all next Monday. Bye. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.